Welcome to another episode of Books, Kids, and Creations with Tracy Bloom. I am your host, and this podcast focuses on people who inspire and uplift future generations with their work. And I'm very excited to be here today with Egyptologist Kara Cooney, who is a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA. She has um, a lot of different studies on death preparations, social competition, and gender studies, and has been featured on the Discovery Channel special Secrets of Egypt's Lost Queen and produced and wrote Discoveries Out of Egypt. So Kara, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. So Kara, you recently um, published this wonderful book, The Good Kings, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and this was published by, is this part of National Geographic's imprint? Yeah, Nat Geo Books, exactly. National Geographic really took me under their wing. And it's it's a really good place for me to thrive as an author and as a professor. So I can kind of cross the boundaries that would it, it would be harder for me to do with other prints. Like my first book was with Random House, with Crown and imprint of Random House, and didn't work as well. So it's it's interesting when you find the right press. It's a good thing. Yeah. And I found it so fascinating because as an Egyptologist, you have all this first person experience and you have all of this knowledge that basically makes you an expert in this field. So as I'm reading this, I mean, it's it's fascinating for so many reasons, um, just from what you've witnessed and you've encountered and learned over the years. So I guess before we jump into the book, how did you become an Egyptologist? What how did that look like? for you to evolve into that. I know it's, it's such a strange thing. And it's something that most Egyptologists would never ask another because we have no real answer. Um, it's something that you felt a calling to do, that you, you see the world better through the lens of these ancient peoples for whatever reason. And there, so there's that. There's this strange calling from this, this past land that I have no connection to. And then on the other side of the coin, there's um, this socioeconomic reasoning, which is that as an upper middle class white chick, as I often say, <laughs> to put it bluntly, um, I, growing up as a Gen Xer, this was something that I was allowed to do. You know, my brother is academically interested and he was encouraged to become a lawyer, or go to law school and do all of those things. But in, in the more sexist uh, time that I was growing up, being an academic at, was was con- in a strange and bizarre field was considered fine. You go ahead and do that. And um, so I think I had the privilege of being allowed to continue on with higher education in this way. And also being a woman and not a man in this society allowed me to take a path that isn't as socially or economically lucrative as, as most paths. You know, being a professor or an academic um, studying something like, you know, French 18th century poetry or whatever it is, is, is often seen as something that's okay for a woman in a patriarchal society, but not a man. And, um, so there's a lot of interesting answers to that, to that question, but I'll stop there. Well, and I would imagine you've been to Egypt countless times throughout the course of your career. And was there any defining moment, I guess, over the course of your your visits to Egypt and all the things that you've studied and looked into where you thought, oh my, I need to write, I need to write this book, or was it just a culmination of things? It's a culmination of things and it's um 
it's really the the moment, the zeitgeist that we find ourselves in right now, in which authoritarianisms are considered so worthy and good. And you you find yourself looking back, being an Egyptologist who studies authoritarian regimes, I study social inequality, I study um, how the elites differentiate themselves from the rest of society. That's That's what I do. I study power. And then to find yourself in the United States and then to look around the world and to see authoritarianisms growing, you, you realize quite quickly that we're not that different from ancient people. We just use different symbols and different things. Um, so in ancient Egypt, they'll have a crook and a flail and different crowns and all kinds of hieroglyphic inscriptions. We have other ideological ciphers that work upon our minds, like the pyramids continue to work on our minds. We have the business suit, red tie, blue tie. We have the 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 veteran hero. We have the military flyover of jets, not a parade with tanks, but a military flyover of jets. That seems to work for us, right? And we don't even think about why the military parade with tanks and the guys marching would be problematic, but we're okay with the jets flying over. You know, what's that about? And so I get really interested in in trying to parse out the water in which we swim and trying to make it clear to people that we fetishize Egypt at our peril. We separate it and differentiate it from our own world at our peril. Yes, they were different from us, but much less than, than we would like to believe. Right. And I, as I was reading it, you know, because you do have all the people who place this guise of mystery and this guise of aliens and this guise of all these things that we can't understand around ancient Egypt as if they were this mystifying great, you know, group of people. But then as I'm reading your book, you make all these parallels between the ancient leaders and leaders all throughout time who have used these same, same tactics of leading, of um, elevating themselves over people, of, you know, uh, making themselves seem godly, uh, the us versus them tactics. I mean, it was really eye-opening and fascinating for me because, you know, I'm sure how many people come to you and say, I watched on ancient aliens, Let you know, I could, I'm sure you have tons of people begin sentences that way. <laughs> Do, but then I'm going to use it. The best offense is a good defense. So I'm going to take what they've said and I'm going to jujitsu, turn it around and say, oh yes, you're right. Those pyramids, when you stand in front of them, and there's a 50-story mountain of stone in front of you. It overwhelms your body. You yeah. feel tiny and insignificant. You feel like the people who ordered this built are superhuman, beyond human, not human even. So I totally understand what it is they're saying. When I take that perspective, and then I turn it around and I say, that's exactly how the pharaohs who built these structures want you to feel. And it is still working on our simple human minds today. When I do that, I get people to go, oh my God. And, and, and then realize that these buildings are there to manufacture power over us. They continue to work upon us and, um, and just try to go, go back and forth. You know, the book is a study of patriarchal systems. That, that is a big word. It's a complicated word. It doesn't mean what most people think it means. Patriarchy or rule of the fathers is it's not man-hating. It's not me saying that men all suck. It's that there are patriarchal systems that have been invented by the agricultural revolution, intensified by the industrial and technological revolutions that we've recently lived under, 
And it's, um, it's a means of creating power through growth, smash and grab, hoarding, commodification of women and children. Uh, and all of these things need to be shown so that people can see it and they go, oh, yeah, that is the system that I live in. That is the way that it works. We live in a patriarchal system today. It is elementally changing at the bottom in a very interesting way. I would say in the last 20 years, really changing. But I grew up in a patriarchal system. This is still, we look at the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, they're almost all men. Um, and and this this is the way um, our scarce resources are distributed. And so I'm I'm just shaking people and going, look, it's the same system, different headgear, different language, um, different religion, but it's the same elemental thing. And unless we see that, um, we can't learn from the past, particularly the ancient past that has so much to teach us. Right. And I like that. I mean, to your point, you're talking about how you're just stating the kind of the obvious of, of how these things have unfolded in the past and how if you don't want to make the same mistakes or fall under these same patterns to open your eyes or maybe step into something new. And it seems like um, some people might have a problem with your your way of thinking and you're just even um, sharing these things, you know, um, because a lot of people don't want to change or they feel comfortable or they, you know, they just get stuck in these patterns. But I, I like how you describe it and how you you lay it out so thoughtfully in your book. Yeah, I just got a bevy of emails today from from a post that was put out by my university by UCLA. And I, I have about, I just saw and I haven't gone through my email yet, but at least seven emails from from people mostly men, but not all, telling me that I don't understand patriarchy, that I need to stop hating men so much, that women in history were just as belligerent. Those were the words. More belligerent, I think is the quote. And Mm -hmm. um, giving me uh, women like Cleopatra, take a look at her. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, I will. Like, I have. (laughs) Exactly. So it's, um, it's those who have the most to lose who are the most triggered by these discussions. And it's the same in my field. My field is um, is not very keen to discuss these things, be- and which I find extraordinarily interesting that we refuse to see the authoritarianism right before our eyes, even though the modern Egyptians and writers like Naguib Mahfouz have had no problems pointing this out. Um, I would say that recent Egyptian nationalistic movements have elevated ancient Egypt very recently in a way that they had not been before which I find interesting, but um, it's uh, these are some third rails that I'm touching. You say it's obvious. I agree. But sometimes pointing out the inequities that are right in front of your eyes can be very, very off-putting for people. Yeah. Well, and another thing about this book, I I did want to touch on how well-written it is. It is extremely well-written. I mean, I just, I soaked it up. It was so easy for me to just dive into but maybe it's because i i am fascinated with the subject but um how was the writing process for the book did it take you a long time or what did that look like for you the pandemic forced a weird and wacky writing process on me and let me tell you how it went so you know i'm the chair of my department i'm a professor at ucla i'm being asked to shift all of my teaching to online i don't know how to do any of this stuff everyone's freaking out a lot of work is piled upon me that I didn't expect when I need to get a book in by a certain deadline. 
So I decided, okay, I'm going to create a class and I'm going to force my book proposal into this class. And I'm going to create a series of lectures that fit what I want to say more or less for the book. And I then took transcripts of those Zoom lectures because we were all at home. This was deep in 2020. Um, I think it was spring of 2020. So imagine March, April of 2020 and what those months were like. Um, George Floyd had just been murdered. There's marches throughout. I mean, it, the world seems to be blowing up, right? Going to hell in a handbasket, as my Nana would have said. And I took those transcripts then, and throughout the following summer, I then didn't have to write to the empty page. Everything was changed and moved around, but I had to start with, for each chapter, a conversational voice. Me talking to a group of 200 students, me trying to get a point across to a bunch of students with their Zoom screens turned off, all freaking out like I was. And that voice and tone, it, it really helped to set the, the feel of the book. And it helped me when I rewrote everything over the summer to, to just give it that more conversational feel as if I'm talking to a classroom, as if I'm having a, a real conversation with you and not being an academic who's trying to write in a particular way. And this, these kings, you know, I know them pretty well. I teach these kings often. And yes, I had to go into rabbit holes and look at scholarship for this discussion or that debate. But I tried to avoid reading the scholarship while I was writing because the way academics write and argue is not helpful for, for communicating to people, I have found. We tend to be more defensive about how we communicate. We work with the data first instead of trying to get the narrative across and the argument and the rhetoric. Um, so I focused on those things. And then of course I'm dipping my toe into the modern world, back into the ancient, back to the modern, back to the ancient. This includes more modern politics than I, than I have ever put in a book before. And the time demanded it. The time still demands it. And, um, so the, the writing, you know, I just kind of felt filled with this urgent need to use all that I know about authoritarianisms of the past, about how patriarchy works and how a particular place, i.e. ancient Egypt, that sells itself so well. Like these guys had marketing spin doctors who could outsell any of us today. They knew what they were doing and they were thousands of years good at doing it, at making their people think that they were divine beings who could connect with the heavens, who could get any, who could get you know all of the riches from for, for their people and prosperity gospel on steroids. I mean, all, all of this, um, is done so well. I wanted, I just, in the same way that when I wrote When Women Ruled the World and I wanted to know why Egypt allowed so many female rulers of state. In this case, I wanted to know how did Egypt do it so well? How did they hold on to this similar culture, language, patriarchal system, uh, kingship for over 3,000 years? What is the secret of their success? So I kept trying to puzzle that out and crack it. And you would think an Egyptologist would know that after studying it for two, 20 years, but no, you don't. And so this is my attempt to, to really try to crack that and figure it out. One thing that I found really fascinating was the mention of um, priests and priestesses in every, you know, with every pharaoh that you mentioned and you have a, a few of them. I was like, who's that? Like, I, yeah. I've never heard of some of the ones that are in here, but each one in their own way used the priests and the priestesses, I don't, I say priestesses, I'm assuming there were women, yeah. but um, yeah. to make themselves seem more divine and elevate themselves over all the people. 
And I started wondering, I wonder if there was some grand act that they performed that the people witnessed. I know in one chapter you talk about how the statues looked otherworldly or how, you know, they would construct them so light would enshroud them and all these kind of tricky things that make them look godlike. But I just wondered, you know, was there something more to the mysticism part or the priest part that? I think the answer is absolutely yes. And this is what makes religion and politics such a good coupling, but also such a dangerous one. Because what the, what the a good, quote unquote, authoritarian will do is to take a religion that is fervently believed, goddesses that people believe can help you through childbirth, that can help you to nurture your, your young infant and keep that infant from dying, um, gods that can make sure that the Nile floods as it should, that help you connect with your earth. It takes these fervently held beliefs, which... Um, I'm not trying to criticize and it co-ops them. And that co-option of religion is probably the patriarchy's most elegant faint, its most elegant turn um, to, to claiming power without people being able to see it as overtly as they would otherwise, making it seem good and pure. And, you know, we live in this country with a separation of church and state, according to all of our sacred, and I, I'm using scare quotes on purpose, documents, um, constitution and, and declaration of independence. And yet we are now more able to see how religion is so much a part of our political lives, particularly as laws are increasingly passed, uh, controlling women's bodies in Texas mm-hmm. and, and states. Um, religion is absolutely a part of this. And if you don't want to say religion, then morality, whatever that morality is. And morality is formed by the patriarchy and it's formed by the stakeholders generally to keep people into certain positions of non-power. And so those were things that I wanted to work with as well. And as you point out, the pageantry associated with making this co-option seem less cynical is uh, very, very important. So you have to go through all of these machinations of of keeping up with the times, making sure that your religion is updated so that it doesn't seem to be um, ossified and archaic and quaint. The Egyptians did this too. It may seem like they're always using the same old thing, but they are not. They're updating it as well. In the same way that we don't have tank parades and marching soldiers that we have the flyover, we don't have our rulers wearing a military kit anymore. They now wear the business suit. They're the entrepreneurs, the the good business fathers that we like. There will be a pushback against that. Um, Soon it'll be once the the late capitalism destroys us all and we all have 17 jobs and we're all exhausted. The new authoritarians will be like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to wear the business suit. I'm not like that, that authoritarian capitalist guy. And they will reinvent themselves again with who knows what this next time. Um, so there's always a new um, reinvention of these of these um, ideological ways. Yeah, it was really fascinating to read how you, you detail the rise and the fall of each one. And then how the next era comes in and says, no, 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 I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to do this. And then, you know, it's even I was kind of laughing at the the re-chiseling of the faces over the statues. Like, oh, just use these. They're here. Just put my face on them. Each patriarch says, I'm not like that last horrible, horrible guy who took all of your power. 
I am new and different. And the same exact system comes in. Right. And we have these discussions in the United States right now between right and left. And th- there is a, a, a method to this madness when people say both sides are the same. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that simplistic and say that both sides are the same. Um, but I will say that both sides work within the patriarchal system and they can't extricate themselves from it. If the, 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 um, the interesting thing that we're dealing with now is that we may be going through a new revolution. I think as a historian, we humans, the human species is going through a new revolution, a post patriarchal revolution, whatever that is. And that is the fire that we are stepping into right now. And why everybody right and left agrees that we're on the edge of a cliff. They may disagree about what to do with about that cliff, but we're all there just sliding down together and not knowing exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the other urgent um, questioning that I applied to this book. And since it is, you know, you've done so much with National Geographic, is there any kind of um, plans in the works for film or television to further produce this, you know, on the screen? I haven't um, engaged with National Geographic documentary side or anything like that, but um, I I live in Los Angeles and I'm always connecting with Hollywood people. And so it is completely possible that um, something could happen from from this kind of a book. I think it'd make a great documentary. I do um, too. But we'll see. You know, documentaries right now, though, um, documentaries are deep in the weeds of patriarchal celebration, particularly for Egypt. So if you watch a documentary about Egypt, and I don't care if it's ancient aliens, history channel, some sort of BS like that, or something that's that's more legitimately done, um, and the centennial of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, it's all a patriarchal celebration and, and a positivism. And I don't think that that most producers of television are very interested in touching this book. Um, so I haven't gotten any calls from the documentary side of things, which is, which is really interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So let's see about some, some fictional uh, aspects that, that might be more interesting. But. Yeah. So in all the time that you've been in your, in your field, what is probably the most interesting thing that you've either uncovered or come across that you can talk about? Yeah, um, I I think the most interesting thing is my research on coffins, it, it, which is, uh, I know I am a coffin expert. So if you put a picture of a coffin in front of me, I would be able to go 18th dynasty, mid 18th dynasty, probably reign of Amenhotep III. And you would go, oh, goodness, why can you do that? And I also study coffins through a socioeconomic lens. So the the coolest thing that I have found, having looked at you know, hundreds of coffins all over the world because the colonialism of Egyptology has pulled these these objects to many different countries. Is um, but the most exciting thing I have found is coffin reuse. That during time periods of government collapse and elite replacement, as academics say, when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, when things get really really difficult, um, the elites who can't get access to wood like acacia or sycamore or even wood that was imported like cedar. And they needed to still differentiate themselves from the, from 95% of society and say, look, I'm going to have a, an existence for forever with my mummified body. And look, I'm going to have this tomb and riches forever. So I am your patriarch, do what I say. The need to have that pageantry was so important that 
when they couldn't get the wood, they reused the coffins of their ancestors. They took the dead people, like dead great-great-grandma out of the coffin, moved her to the side, probably did some ancient magic to make sure she didn't come and, and haunt them. And then they re they replastered and repainted those coffins and they updated them like we update our kitchens and our bathrooms. Wow. And the coffins that I have looked at from the 20th and 21st dynasty and early 22nd show 65% with just what I can see with my eyes, evidence of coffin reuse. And if I had access to carbon 14 dating to, to take samples for every one of these coffins, I guarantee you it would be 90%, but I don't. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's really interesting to see how people who are wealthy and want to keep their power will do anything to maintain it. Even when there is extraordinary scarcity that encourages them to create a new system of visually showing power to people, they generally don't. And I compare coffin reuse, strangely, the best analogy I've found thus far is human induced climate change in which we know there's a problem. We know there's an issue, but no one does anything about it because our economic livelihood is so connected to these destructive systems and my retirement and your retirement and all of these different things. So we just kick the can down the road and do nothing. And um, it's the same thing with the coffins. There's no wood coming in, but we need to show how powerful we are. So let's just figure out a way. People continue to do the same thing, even if it's highly destructive, even if it could be considered immoral and include theft. Um to maintain their power. And so, yeah, that's, that's probably the, the coolest thing. And people never expect coffin reuse. They're like, wait, what? How right. could that be? No, right. All, all the time. Well, I didn't even know how big death was, like how big of a deal it was to have a cool, you know, burial chamber and all the best things for the afterlife until, you know, reading in here, I was like, oh, I guess this was a big deal, you know, to have the best burial chambers and the best things to get you to the afterlife. I mean, remember the dead do not bury themselves. So all of that show, that display is all being done by the living to show their power. So it's kind of like when you get married, you realize at a certain point, this wedding is not for you. This wedding is for your family. It's for everyone to put their best foot forward. It's for the in-laws. It's for, it's for everybody to display. It's not for your loving relationship unless you elope and you go off and, and just do something yourself. It's it's a display. And a funeral for the ancient Egyptians was the same thing. And it's a mechanism of of showing and maintaining family power and and just making sure everyone knows is we have this coffin, we have this stuff, we we have you don't and look at mm-hmm. we can put it in a hole in the ground. Watch us. Mm-hmm. Um it's like somebody having a great big yacht, having four houses, having extraordinary amounts of cars and watches and things. We do the same things. We just don't do it through the pageantry of death rituals. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of shifted things, but I like that you also titled the book, the good Kings, because as I was reading it, I mean, you highlight some of the, the really crappy things that these Pharaohs did. And I'm like, is there such thing as a good King? I mean, they make themselves look like they are the only ones that can, communicate with the gods and can be this ruler that they need and can heal the things of the past. But then I started looking at all the other things that they've done. And I thought, have there ever been good games? I think that, you know, we work with the systems that we have. And obviously I'm, I'm using that title in a sly way, trying to say, 
well, they're telling us they are the ultimate good. The ultimate good. Are they? And we need to question what that actually means. I, I do think that many of those Egyptian kings were trying to do what was right. And we're trying to be the best leaders they possibly could have been. Maybe not the examples I picked. Um, <laughs> maybe Taharka would be an exception to that. Most of the other ones I, I wouldn't necessarily put into that category. Um, but many of their, their predecessors were trying to do what was right. And so it's a discussion of, of how morality and goodness can make a king infallible. And these particular five, you know, they're at the tippy top of the wave that's about to crest. And as such, they're the most interesting ones to pay attention to because you can see the entitlement and the privilege and the wealth all collected. They can do no wrong. They are so good. And that's when it all falls apart. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed the book and I, I hope that you receive some, some great reviews on it. I'm sure you will. And um, I guess as far as new projects on the horizon, is there anything additional that you're working on or any new exciting things? I'm working on the Coffins book that I mentioned, that Coffin Reuse book, which is, oh, it's so exhausting. And I have many people helping me, grad students helping me, because I need to get all the photos in there and they need to be annotated so they can see what I see. Because looking at tiny little details in person, you're like, oh, it's right there. And then you try to show that to somebody in the same way you say I'm a good writer and thank you. But in this, in, I now need to be a good visual display person and be able to point out, oh, that's it right there. And I'm circling it in the picture so you can see it and give people an idea of how reuse is, is done. So I'm working on that. And inshallah, God willing, as, as all Egyptians should say, that will appear in 2022. And, and I'm thinking of the next book with Nat Geo Books. And now that we're discussing, uh, women's power, women's sexuality. I'm becoming more interested in research that I've done on the Egyptian harem mm. and the commodification of the female body by the patriarchy. What does that look like? And and I think that's where I must go because as Texas has passed this law and as we discuss this more and as other states follow and we discuss this in the Supreme Court, what does the morality of the unborn child mean? What does a baby mean? Um, all of these, these things are, are, are questions that I now must sort out in my mind. And that's where I tend to go is where things are the hottest, where there's the most, um, discussion and, and fighting. I, I tend to go to the hottest, most electrified third rail. So I think that's calling me and, uh, it's, it's time for me to take that one on. It's, it's definitely interesting. And you have decades of experience and knowledge that you can share with the world on the topic. So I think it's fascinating that you, I mean, have all this, this wealth of knowledge to share and everything that you've put out there. I would definitely read those books. I think it would be really neat to read those. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kara, for being here today and um, best of luck with all that you do. And thank you so much for your, your beautiful book, baby. And um, best of luck in the future. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Tracy. This was indeed a pleasure.